0: Hi, I'm Maureen Milliken.
1: And this is Rebecca Milliken, and this is Crime and Stuff
0: the podcast. You would do
1: if you had nothing better to do.
0: Yep. And here we are. It's a
1: beautiful day.
0: It is a beautiful day, except for the ticks. The That's ticks, why I don't go I, outside. I can't go outside without coming in with a tick on me. Yeah. And I'd say something about it on Facebook, but you'll get a bunch wanna, of people. I don't want to get a bunch of fucking advice I don't need. Like I just want to share. Like, but I don't want, and I think my neighbors think that because I haven't mowed my lawn yet this spring, no mow Mm. may, also no mow don't feel like mowing may. So of course it's thigh high out there. I think, I'm sure they think that that's what's causing the ticks because I I was talking to them about the ticks and I noticed them exchange a glance, Mm. but I don't really care because the ticks will still be there. Even if I mow my lawn, it's not like my lawn is causing the ticks.
1: I don't think it is, but I don't know. I don't go outside, so yeah. Well, you I'm probably don't have it. as many
0: in Portland as I have here. Probably
1: not. I but anyway, not. do you
0: do you have anything you wanted to share before we got started?
1: I thought there was something I wanted to, but no. I oh, can't oh, think of I
0: have, I have one thing. I could have looked it up on the internet, but I didn't because it's too annoying to try to look shit like this up. But I have been hearing for months and months and months. That Max and Discovery Plus were going to merge. Right? They did today. Right. So, okay. Hang on. You may have the okay. information I need, but just I let me do. finish. Okay. Finish my thought. I got an email saying HBO Max is now Max, and Max is going to have all the stuff. Blah blah blah. And if you're an HBO Max subscriber, you have it. Blah blah blah. And nowhere in that email did it mention Discovery Plus.
1: Okay. What I heard today on NPR.
0: Oh, okay.
1: Was that? It was Brian Deggins or whatever his name is, the TV guy. Yeah. I don't um, know. Max will have HBO and all that shit. If you have Discovery Plus, you still will have Discovery Plus. You can upgrade it to Max, so you, okay. you will still have your Discovery Plus. Right. Thing. So
0: I just pay five dollars more a month because yeah. I pay four ninety nine for ads, they... and Max is nine ninety nine with ads. Will it have yes. all the same content? as discovery plus so i can finish watching my cat from hell i think i I think i'm gonna do that but he was saying which i kind of see what he's
1: saying although i don't really Is he thought it was kind of with streaming services the beauty of them is you pick and choose what you want to watch and you're just paying for that and now it's almost like it's a cable service where there's a bunch of shit you're paying for that you don't want because the top grade of max is going to be like 20 bucks a month i think Mm. with no ads and better right. i content. don't mind
0: i don't mind the ads but there's also better content see i uh, i don't like that i
1: pay 6.99 for discovery plus with no ads and i don't mind paying that yeah. because yeah. especially on like my cat from hell when they pause stupid places it's like oh at least i don't have to sit through a bunch of ads this stupid yeah to see how this person answers the question but like i have hulu with ads and it doesn't really bother yeah. me yeah but so ads. whatever
0: But anyway, well, I'm glad you cleared that up for me. I'm glad one of us listens to NPR. Just happened to
1: listen to it today. At yeah. work. I had construction at home and construction at work. So uh, that's, no matter where I am, yeah, there's fucking sucks. noise. Mom is excited because today they delivered her new recliner that I bought.
0: Yeah, you sent her. me a picture. She must be so happy. It's a
1: little, kind of a little one. They have electric ones. She did not want the electric one. She wanted the one with the little lever that you push. Well, that's good.
0: She'll get some exercise then. Mm. She's been sitting in it all day since it got here. So, uh, anyway, so should we start? Yes. Okay. Okay. I'm excited because I don't know what you're doing. You'll know, you'll know it as soon as I start talking about okay. it because
1: at the end of it, you are living in Maine and you are working for the newspaper. So most of my research for this episode was from newspaper articles using newspapers.com as usual, the Portland Press Herald, the Kennebec Journal, the Morning Sentinel. And also I found some court papers on findlaw.com, Ooh. which is always helpful. Yes. And a lot of the local, the stories from Maine or even wherever I'm getting stories from, I find that the local papers usually have most of the information because the national and international outlets take they just pick up AP. Yeah. yeah. Once in a while, like I look at stuff and if they have something different, I'll use it. But I found that the local papers yeah. covered this the best. Those so. were the good old
0: days. Ten years from now, when we're sitting here podcasting and doing something that happened this year, we're not going to be able to say I that. I don't even know
1: where we're going to get nobody's covering. I
0: know. I don't either. Okay. So I'm going to start. It's exciting. Okay. okay. I'm excited.
1: December 21st, 2007 was a really cold day in Hollowell, Maine. I was living there at the time, but I don't remember that specific day. It didn't get much above 20 degrees Fahrenheit that day, but it was dry and the sun was bright. Three people, two Maine State troopers and a Secret Service agent, approached a well-kept white 1800s-era home on Greenville Street. Greenville Street winds up a hill south of town where the Purina feed store used to be off Route 201. The house was right past the railroad track crossing, not far from the walking path. The man who answered the door was James N. Cameron, Maine's number one drug prosecutor. But the visitors weren't there on business, at least not business that involved James in his professional capacity. Mm -hmm. No, they were there to execute a search warrant. James Cameron was being investigated for possessing digital images of child pornography. I want to talk a little bit about the history of the laws involving child porn. I want to say I really hate it when people call it kitty porn. For some yes. reason, that really bugs me. I found a good history on the website for Stobbs Law Offices, which is a criminal defense firm in Alton, Illinois. When I was doing my research, it came up. And so I'm just going to read what they wrote, because I think it's written simply and explains it a lot better than I could say it myself. Yeah. And it might seem a little lengthy, but... It gives you good back when I'm telling you the story. Yeah. It'll Background help. Background is good. It'll help. Why can't I think of the word? Context. Yeah, it'll help the context, but that's not the word I meant, but I can't. I can't think of the word. You look very oh, pretty God. tonight. Ah, oh, it's the lighting. Okay. okay. Okay, now I'm in my quoting voice. Okay. Child pornography laws were practically non-existent before 1970. However, the mid-80s saw the first wave of laws enacted. The first major federal law passed by Congress was the 1984 Child Protection Act. The CPA of 1984 amended the federal criminal code covering sexual exploitation of children. Notably, it prohibited the distribution of materials involving the sexual exploitation of minors, even if the material was not found to be, quote, obscene. Before this legislation, obscenity of images depicting minors was based off a common law standard that balanced the nature of the image with First Amendment rights. What the Child Protection Act of 1984 did was remove First Amendment protection from child pornography, By stating such depictions were per se illegal. In 1990, Congress passed the Child Protection Restoration and Penalties Enhancement Act. This law strengthened the sentences for distribution of child pornography. Additionally, the federal law criminalized, quote, mere possession of child pornography. Entering the 1990s with the increased access and use of the Internet, Congress found a greater need to pass additional child pornography laws. In 1996, Congress passed the Child Pornography Prevention Act of 1996. The CPPA was a substantial rewriting of federal criminal laws addressing sexual exploitation of children to encompass the new digital age. The CPPA restricted child pornography on the internet, including virtual child pornography, which are images depicting child pornography, even if an actual child was not used in the creation of the image. The CPPA also revised the definition of, quote, visual depiction to include data stored on a computer disk or by electronic means, which are capable of conversion into a visual image. The CPPA further expanded the scope of penalties and provided enhanced penalties for offenders with a prior conviction. Recently, Congress passed the Child Protection Act of 2012, which again amended certain provisions of the Federal Criminal Code regarding sexual exploitation of children. Child pornography statutes are codified in Title 18 of the United States Code. Currently under the Code 18 U.S.C. Section 2251 covers sexual exploitation of children, which includes production of child pornography. 18 U.S.C. Section 2252 covers certain activities relating to material involving the sexual exploitation of minors. This section includes possession, distribution, and receipt of child pornography. On the Department of Justice website, it makes sure to state that federal jurisdiction applies when the Internet is used to commit a violation. It is the use of the Internet that connects child pornography into, quote, interstate or foreign commerce, and therefore within Congress's ability to regulate. Under these laws, all violations are treated as a serious crime with equally serious penalties. Under Section 2251, there is a statutory minimum of 15 years to a maximum of 30 years in prison. A first-time offender convicted of transporting child pornography under Section 2252 faces a minimum of five years to a maximum of 20 years in prison. And this will come up later, but I'm confused by this. We'll talk about it when the sentencing comes up. I'm back to my thing now. Offenders may be prosecuted under state laws in addition or in place of federal law. Finally, all sex offenders must register on the National Sex Offender Registry. The National Sex Offender Registry was created when Congress passed the Adam Walsh Child Protection and Safety Act of 2006. The act generally expanded already existing federal statutes, making more explicit the registration requirements that were previously under state discretion. All states are mandated to participate in the registry. Since its passing, the registry has come under much scrutiny. It is most commonly challenged as unconstitutional on several grounds, including ex post facto law, cruel and unusual punishment, overbroad, and violating due process. And those have come up later. So now that you understand that, back to Jim Cameron. No one really knew about Jim's issues. He was put on paid leave from his job with the attorney general's office while the investigation proceeded. I just want to cut in here and go off my script to say, I understand that they can't report certain things, but I also feel like when someone's a public servant, I I don't think they should have reported it right away, but I also feel like he's not the only one that I'm thinking about. Just like if anyone in law enforcement, if there's an investigation going on and stuff, they're public servants. It seems like, there shouldn't be any, you know, there should be full transparency. But anyway. I agree. So he was put on leave immediately in December. And his he position, was again, was? He was an assistant attorney general. Right, okay. For the state of Maine. And right. I'll talk more about his specific position. He was a drug prosecutor. So nobody knew much about it. He was put on paid leave, but it wasn't announced or anything. That changed in April of 2008. WGME, the CBS TV affiliate in Portland, broke the story on April 18th that Jim's computers, home and work, all had been confiscated and he was being investigated on charges of possession of child porn. WGME had spoken to sources in the attorney general's office and the Hollowell Police Department who were not named. A search warrant had been issued back in December, but it was impounded by the district court so nothing could be confirmed. A spokesperson for the attorney general's office would only confirm that James Cameron was on paid administrative leave. They wouldn't say why. Hours after the story broke, James Cameron was fired from his job as assistant attorney general. No reason was given to the press, only that Jim had been fired per state employment protocol. Since 2000, Jim's role was drug prosecution coordinator, meaning he was in charge of all drug cases in the counties of York, Cumberland, Androscoggin, Kennebec, and Penobscot, and had five other assistant attorneys general working under him. Before that, he worked as an assistant district attorney in Kennebec and Somerset counties for David Crook, who could not be reached for comment when they first reported Jim's firing. Mm. But he has comments later. Newspaper reports said that a colleague of Jim said that Jim had, quote, sort of disappeared, end quote, sometime in December, and that assistant AG Bill Savage had taken over his duties. Paula Silsby, Maine's U.S. attorney, wouldn't confirm or deny that they were investigating Jim. But she did say, this office has jurisdiction of child pornography cases. We've prosecuted a lot of them. We've never prosecuted an assistant attorney general, but we've prosecuted a lot of cases. As was explained in the brief history that I said of the child porn laws, the images come from out of state or out of the country. So they're usually not in state jurisdiction for prosecution. In addition to his AAG duties, Jim had been appointed by Governor John Baldacci to the Substance Abuse Services Commission in 2003. Governor Baldacci told the press it would be inappropriate for him to comment on Jim's predicament.
0: Yeah, I bet. Nobody wants to touch that
1: shit with a 10 foot pole. Oh, no, I know. Jim also taught some classes at the Maine Criminal Justice Academy in Vassalboro as a volunteer instructor, and he had been an adjunct professor in the criminal justice program at Thomas College in Waterville from 2003 to 2007. He was very busy. Mm. James got his bachelor's degree from Kalamazoo College in Michigan and his law degree at the University of Detroit School of Law. When David Hench of the Portland Press-Herald asked Hollowell Police Chief Eric- (laughs) <laughs> Hallowell Police Chief Eric Nason about the investigation. Eric said, there's probably not much information I can give you on that.
0: It's a state police case. Yeah, that Nason was another piece oh, of Oh,
1: yeah, yeah, yeah. State police wouldn't talk about the investigation, either telling the reporters that they were unaware of an investigation or saying that they could not confirm or deny. As of his firing, James Cameron had not been arrested or charged with any crime. Shortly after he was asked, Jim's attorney talked with David Hench of the Press Herald about his client, saying that Jim was not fired because of the investigation, although he didn't say why Jim was fired. Attorney General Stephen Rowe would only say that Jim was fired after a long personnel investigation, but it had nothing to do with the timing of the WGME story. Of course not. Peter Rodway, Jim's lawyer, said James Cameron has been a longtime law and order prosecutor of drug crimes. He's the last person that's going to be breaking the law knowingly. If someone thinks James Cameron has committed a crime, charge him and let him have his day in court. Hmm. Let him defend himself. So far, he hasn't been able to do that. The clear implication is that Cameron is fired for something to do with child
0: pornography. And that is simply not true. And I just want to say, as far as the timing of the WGME story, my thought when you first brought it up is that he was going to get fired, so somebody gave a reporter friend a tip about the whole thing. Yeah. Not that the story appeared and they said, oh, yes. shit, now we have to fire him, but the yeah, firing he was was, it was imminent, yeah.
1: According to Peter Rodway, there was no illegal material on Jim's work computer. If there were illegal images on his home computer, well, that doesn't mean Jim put them there. Peter said, if there ever is a case against Jim Cameron, I think it's going to be a textbook example of how you can get stuff on your hard drive that you don't know is there. James Cameron has never knowingly possessed child pornography. He doesn't like child pornography. He hasn't solicited it, and I don't think any investigation will ever show that. He's a good guy. This whole thing is a disaster for him. Assistant attorneys General can be fired for any or no reason and serve at the pleasure of the Attorney General. So I suppose you could argue that Jim being fired might not be directly related to anything he did involving child pornography, but I think you'll see as it unfolds that he ultimately lost a job because of his other activities. And it could just be that Steve Rowe, the AG, didn't want the bad publicity no matter what the outcome was going to be. Peter Rodway said, Jim Cameron was a tremendous asset to the organization. I think given his number of years of service and his job performance, he should not have been terminated. I think those types of things in this particular case outweigh anything they could point to as wrongdoing at his job. Hmm. So if he's a good prosecutor Right, whatever. whatever. It took the better part of a year, but on February 11th, 2009, James Cameron was indicted by a federal grand jury in Bangor on 16 counts of transporting, receiving, and possessing child pornography. Also, just a note about the process. An indictment means that there is sufficient evidence to bring formal charges against someone and proceed to trial. The grand jury is presented with evidence and they vote on it. Grand juries are secret proceedings because you're innocent before proven guilty and they don't want people to know what's going on until they know for sure that they're going to indict somebody. So they don't want you to have the shadow of guilt.
0: It's not like a trial. It's the prosecutor presenting evidence to the grand jury. James turned
1: himself into the U.S. Marshal Service on Tuesday, February 17th, after Peter Rodway was notified during the weekend that his client had been indicted. In court, in front of U.S. Magistrate Judge Margaret Kravchuk, James reportedly said, not guilty, in a confident manner when asked how he pled to the charges. Huh. During the court proceedings, it was revealed that the investigation discovered that Jim had uploaded images of child pornography to a Yahoo photo album using five different screen names. He also transmitted images using Google Hello. A chat and file sharing service, which is now long gone. All child porn images were on his home computers, not work. U.S. Attorney Paula Silsby said, none of the counts of the indictment involve a state-owned computer. Peter Rodway said after court, Jim is relieved that the process has finally begun. He can now defend these charges. Before, all we had were grand jury leaks. And you can't defend against leaks. Now we have something tangible to defend against. And he is absolutely committed and enthused about defending against these charges. The trial date was set for June of 2009 to give Peter time to go through, quote, several large boxes of discovery. Peter told reporters he'd probably take at least 60 days just to get through all the material, which was images and printed emails and chats from the computers. Ugh. The search warrant was still sealed by the court, so reporters didn't have much to go on, just what they could find out in court testimony. Jim's bail was set at 75000 unsecured. That means that the defendant doesn't have to pay right then, but if he takes off, he has to pay. So mm-hmm. basically, no money down.
0: Must be nice. I wonder how many, you know, inner-city Black defendants get that deal. I
1: know. He was to be released to his brother in Michigan, which is where he had been staying during the investigation since, since December. He'd moved out there. Jim had to surrender his passport, wear an ankle bracelet monitor, and his Internet use would be monitored by the U.S. Probation and Pretrial Services Office in Michigan. There was a software that they would install in the home computers that you would allow them to see what was being accessed online.
2: Mm.
1: Gail Malone, the prosecutor, didn't want Jim to get bail. First of all, his crimes were serious and involved minor victims, and the crimes had been going on for over a year. Also, Jim had traveled out of the country several times in the past few months, as well as going to Michigan. It seemed like he'd used some kind of wiping software on his computers to, quote, erase evidence. Hmm. Peter Rodway told the court that, yes, Jim had moved to Michigan after the search of his home in December 2007. Jim and his brother, Daniel, were starting a business making watches and selling them online. Jim had traveled to Japan and Germany in December of 2008 because of his new business pursuit. Jim had also driven through Canada while going back and forth from Michigan to Maine. So technically he was out of the country Mm -hmm.
0: then. Yeah, we've done that trip. You go across that part of Ontario that, you know, comes down.
1: So Jim, he had just checked in Mm -hmm. and left for Michigan with his brother. Of course, the trial did not start in June like it had been scheduled. There were motions and this and that delaying the start of trial. In September 2009, Peter Rodway filed a motion to suppress the evidence that was collected in the search of Jim Cameron's home on December 21st, 2007. The motion disputed the power of the judge that signed the search warrant. It said that the search warrant's scope was too broad. The search of the computer files was done after the search warrant expired. He also took issue with affidavits filed by Yahoo and the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children. What spurred the investigation in the first place was a report from Yahoo to the National Center about child porn being uploaded to a computer. The National Center for Missing and Exploited Children works with law enforcement to catch people disseminating child pornography online. Yahoo reported the ISP, which was traced back to an account held by Jim's wife, Barbara. Jim's trial was set for October of 2009, but Assistant U.S. Attorney Donald Clark said there are still a number of pre-trial motions pending before the court. It's possible, given the pending motions, that the matter will continue. Besides the motion to suppress, Peter Rodway filed a couple other motions. One of them said that the charges were not based on evidence, but rather some kind of personal hostility towards Jim by the U.S. Attorney's Office and give them giving in to institutional pressure. Another motion said that the charges were a result of of political differences between U.S. Attorney Paula Silsby and Maine Attorney General Stephen Rowe. Paula Silsby was appointed by President George W. Bush. Stephen Rowe was running as Democrat for governor. The presiding judge, U.S. District Judge John Woodcock, dismissed these motions and was not happy about them. He issued a 13-page order which said in part the Claims of vindictive and selective prosecution are unfounded, are contradicted by the evidence in this record, and do not generate the right to further discovery. The notion that Ms. Silsby sought to discredit Mr. Rowe by prosecuting this, his close Democratic advisor is patently fanciful, since it was Mr. Rowe himself who made the referral to the United States Attorney. Further, to demonstrate that he has been prosecuted because he was a Democrat, Mr. Cameron would have to demonstrate that there have been Republicans engaging in similar conduct who have not been prosecuted. Hmm. By the way, Judge Woodcock was also appointed by George W. Bush. But I got to like Judge Woodcock while I was doing this. I
0: like his name.
1: There was a Woodcock that ran for governor, but it wasn't yeah, him.
0: Yeah, yeah, well, it's it's one of those weird main names. Yeah.
1: <laughs> <laughs>
0: A.G. Stephen
1: Rowe gave the case to the U.S. Attorney's Office in January 2008. The indictment came a little over a year after that. In February of 2010, Peter Rodway filed a motion to amend Jim's bail conditions so he could return to Maine to his wife and kids. The prosecutors in the U.S. Department of Probation and Pretrial Services did not oppose the motion. Although the children's ages were not revealed in court, the newspapers speculated they were either over 18 or DHHS, which is the Department of Health and Human Services, didn't think the children were at risk to be around their father in fact i believe the son was about 14 or 15 at the time and the daughter was either in high school or cow i think she was right away yeah she was
0: 18 or 19 yeah
1: jim's custody was transferred from his brother daniel to his wife barbara and he came back to maine sometime in the early spring of 2010 all the other restrictions imposed on him when he was granted bail were still in place the ankle monitor the internet restrictions etc In the beginning of March 2010, Peter Rodway quit and Jim was was given a court-appointed attorney. U.S. Magistrate Margaret Kravchuk appointed Michael Cuniff. The reason Jim qualified for a court-appointed lawyer was because of his income, or lack of it, I should say. When he was AGA, he made about $108,000 per year in pay and benefits. In his divorce documents, which of course he was getting divorced, Mm His watchmaking and selling income was listed as twenty five thousand dollars a year. Hmm. He had signed. He had signed all the property over to Barbara, his wife, when they broke up. So he had no assets. They owned two houses: the one on Greenfield Street in Hollowell, and one at Echo Valley Estates in Romaine, mm-hmm. which is near you. Yep, just on the knows, lakes. Although the picture they showed of his. Cabin Mm -hmm. wasn't great. He also owned a 35% share in a jewelry finding business in Michigan, which he signed over to Barbara. The reason Peter Rodway withdrew wasn't revealed at the time, but I'm sure it was in part due to the fact Jim couldn't pay him. But I think there were a couple other issues going on Mm -hmm. there that we'll talk about later.
0: Well, I'm sure it's hard after you've spent 60 days going through several cartons of child porn found on your client's devices and stuff. It's probably hard to look at the guy and deal with him. Gross. Once again, the trial was delayed so the new defense attorney could get
1: up to speed. The trial was set for July, 2010. At the end of June, 2010, James Cameron waived his right to a jury trial, which meant a judge would decide his fate rather than 12 of his peers. In a case that could get emotional, this is probably the smartest route. A judge would presumably look at the evidence more objectively Than 12 people, 12 regular citizens, and not get swayed by other factors besides the evidence at hand. The trial was finally set for August 16, 2010. One of the pre-trial motions the new defense team filed was objecting to the evidence collected by Yahoo, saying that they were acting improperly as a government agent by reporting illegal images. Judge Woodcock shut that down pretty decisively. In dismissing the motion, he wrote... The mere fact Yahoo and the government are united against the sexual exploitation of children does not make Yahoo an arm of the government. James Cameron also claimed he was in New York on two of the dates listed in the indictment. The trial brief indicated that one of the charges would be dismissed prior to the trial. It said defendant did not have access to those images on or about the date alleged as the screen names have been deactivated by Yahoo. Which makes me think that somebody had sent him some images, but he couldn't get to right. them. Another motion to delay the trial was not successful. Judge Woodcock wrote, the charges are manifestly serious and have now been pending for over 18 months. The court is willing to accommodate the defendant up to a point, but these charges must be resolved and the court is determined to resolve them this month. The official charges said that on or about August 11th, 2007, James Cameron knowingly transported child pornography in interstate commerce by means of computer, specifically by transmitting digital images of child pornography using Google Hello, an internet-based chat and file sharing service. Judge Woodcock wrote an order in December 2008 that was finally released to the public before the trial. And here's what some of it said. Because it gives some good information. So I'm quoting. I'm I'm Judge Woodcock now. (laughs) It begins with two referrals from the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children to the Maine State Police on August 3rd, 2007 and September 6, 2007, which itself had been triggered by a report from the internet service provider Yahoo. Yahoo reported locating numerous images of child pornography in the photos section of a Yahoo account. The Maine State Police Computer Crimes Unit undertook an investigation and ultimately identified the owner of the account to be Barbara Cameron, the defendant's wife. Further investigation confirmed that Mr. Cameron was an assistant attorney general for the state of Maine and that some of the pornography involved children as young as four to six years old uh. engaging in sexual conduct. On December 21st, 2007, the state executed a search warrant and seized four computers. When the computers were examined, there was evidence of internet chat between users about sex with children, images of child pornography, and related topics. In one of those conversations, the person identified himself as a married 45-year-old man with a daughter, a description that fits Mr. Cameron, end quote. David Crook, who was the assistant district attorney for Kennebec County for many years, Mm -hmm. and Jim's former boss, told the newspaper that Jim was a man of integrity, a totally honest man. I knew his wife and son. He had a good family. When Jim worked for me six or seven years ago, he was a very good assistant DA. When he went to the AG's office, he was a very good drug prosecutor. I never knew James Cameron to ever tell me a lie or tell falsehoods in any way, shape, or manner. Since he lost his job, he has avoided contact with all his former professional relationships. Mm -hmm. And I want to say... How do you know someone's
0: lying until you catch them at it? I think I said that in our last episode. Yes, too. David. I've Cr- never
1: known him to lie to me. Yeah, no shit.
0: I, I think David Cr- was has lying. Been- been in some of our previous episodes oh, I'm sure he as has. well, saying, and I, he's never said anything we didn't have an issue with. And I...
1: At the trial, the government prosecutor said that even though Jim tried to delete all the evidence of his activity, there was plenty of proof that he was engaging in viewing and trading child pornography. Hmm. Jim's lawyer, Michael Cuniff, called the explicit digital photos and messages that were evidence technical camouflage, whatever that means, uh, for the government's lack of proof against the defendant. I guess he's trying to say that, oh, you're showing all these disgusting images to distract from the fact. But guess what? The the disgusting images came from the fucking computer. Right. Each count of sending and receiving child porn had a minimum of five years up to 20. So each kind of possession would be up to 10 years per count, which means that Jim could have gotten more than 60 years in prison. Mm. Michael kind of argued that his client never had access to these images and never had any intent to access them. Mm. The first witness was a legal assistant for Yahoo who answered questions about how the company gathers data and reports illegal activity. It was clear from the cross-examination that the defense was going to try to prove that data from Yahoo was unreliable and couldn't be trusted to be accurate. The state troopers and secret service agent who made that first visit to James Cameron's home in December 2007 testified. They told the court that when Jim answered the door, he was calm and controlled. He told them he had nothing to do with any child pornography. As they carried out the search warrant, Jim had some helpful suggestions for them. Jim thought maybe someone from outside his home had somehow hacked into his system. Hmm. It was an unsecured network after all. Hmm. Then he told them maybe his 12-year-old son, who was on the autism spectrum, Hmm. had downloaded the images. What an asshole. I know, I know. I love it when they throw their kids under the bus. For every piece of evidence introduced, Michael Cunoff had an objection. The trial went at a snail's pace due to arguments about admissibility of evidence and procedural matters. Michael argued that Yahoo did not own the images that users posted on their own password protected accounts. He said that Yahoo didn't have the right to just go through people's private information. He said it was like a safe deposit box at the bank. The bank owned the box, but not their contents. And they can't just look through the box whenever they want. AUSA Donald Clark said no, the photos were property of Yahoo and Yahoo had a right to report suspicious images. And I would say that makes sense because if Yahoo ignored something illegal, you can be damn sure they'd be sued since they have the big pockets. They have to protect their ass. It's not mentioned in the news articles, but it seems like a lot of these online servers have the, that kind of language in their agreements that you always check I accept without really reading. Right. I'm sh- pretty sure a lot of them say we own the images and stuff like and that.
0: And I think nowadays, all these years later, people would be appalled if people are appalled when Facebook and places like that don't yes. police that stuff. Exactly.
1: Donald Clark, the AUSA, was annoyed that this issue had already had already been decided through pretrial motions, and Judge Woodcock was also annoyed by it. It seems to me on a bench trial, you don't want to piss off the judge, Michael Cunoff. Judge Woodcock said, we can talk about this issue for the rest of the week, but at some point I have to let the government present its case. Detectives Scott Bradine and Don Ego, who were with the Maine State Police Computer Crimes Unit, were the last prosecution witnesses to testify. They said James Cameron was deep into child pornography. He would supposedly be working at home, according to work records, but his computer records showed he was online looking at and talking about and transmitting child pornography. Just something to think about. You don't just go online and find child porn. You have to prove to others that you're serious, that you're not law enforcement. You have to give some to get into the circles where child porn is displayed and traded. So it's not just a passive thing of looking at images, which is bad enough. You're sharing them too. And we'll talk about that more at the end. Every single image is a victimized child. It's truly disgusting. It really disgusts me. The computer crimes detectives found evidence that Jim had been doing this for at least the past two years. A file-erasing software called Wash & Go had been used on all the computers, but it didn't get rid of everything, and Detective Braining found images, emails, and search information related to child porn. The washing software didn't erase some of the data from Google Hello. It was probably in the cloud or whatever, or somehow it didn't get to it, and it was still on the hard drive. A user with the screen named Jim took part in chats in which he said he had sexual interests in little girls as young as one year old. Oh, Jesus. Detective Breeding testified that the chats in and of themselves weren't illegal. But the fact that they existed were proof that the illegal images were not on the computers by accident. He said, are these images the result of accidental and or inadvertent activity? The answer is no. In all, the investigation found 17 Yahoo profiles attached to three IP addresses. IP means internet protocol, in case you don't know, on computers in the Cameron household. Many of them had sexually explicit names, but I couldn't find out what they were. I wanted to uh. know. The data from the computers included login names and online times and send times that tied the activity to Jim. Another thing that showed that Jim was online doing illegal stuff had to do with his watchmaking interest. Interspersed with the child porn activity in searches were searches for watchmaking information. <laughs> to investigators, yeah. that indicated Jim was the one doing all the switching back and forth from one interest to another in one sitting. As I said, some of the activity was on his computers when he was supposedly working remotely. Jim's administrative assistant testified that Jim was often away from his office with no explanation. There was a running joke around the AG's office. Where in the world is Jim Cameron? (laughs) And you know what? If you have an administrative assistant, you better hope they never testify against you. Because I've been one and I knew They know everything. Defense attorney Michael Cuniff told Judge Woodcock that his client was going to take the weekend to decide whether or not he was going to testify on his own behalf. He decided not to, because honestly, what could he say in his own behalf? Yeah. Def- in the government's closing statement, AUSA Donald Clark said, Where in the world is Jim Cameron? We know the answer. He was at home on his computer trading child pornography. The defense maintained that there was no proof that Jim was the one who was accessing and trading child porn. Michael said if his client inadvertently received these kinds of materials, he deleted them because he didn't want them. Fantasy chats and erotic conversations are not crimes and are protected by the first amendment, free speech. Hmm. Attorney kind of said, if a person wants to collect child pornography, they save it, they don't destroy it. And I would say- if they think someone's onto them, they'll destroy it. Yeah, yeah. Wouldn't they? And he must have had an inkling of... Somebody Michael Cun- may have
0: even tipped him off. You know, he had yeah. a lot of friends in law enforcement. I know. Michael of
1: said, no meaningful search for exculpatory evidence was made. He argued that the investigators never tried to find out if anyone else could have possibly been the person involved in these crimes. He said to Judge Woodcock, the persistence and vigor I have displayed were manifestations of my respect for the law, not disrespect for the court. You know, the fact that he was like arguing about every single thing. After six days of trial, Judge Woodcock found James Cameron guilty of 13 of the 15 counts against him. Of course, the newspaper described James as showing no emotion. One of their favorite phrases Mm -hmm. when someone's found guilty or not. I I wouldn't
0: show any fucking emotion if it were me. I, I wouldn't give them the satisfaction. And also,
1: what emotion did they want you to show? Right. If he cried, they'd say it was. Fa- I mean, I'm not saying he's okay. Although they don't on. say that to criticize, they want to. I know, to they're pick. just trying to describe. Yeah. Judge Woodcock found Jim guilty on eight counts of sending, four counts of receiving, and one count of possessing child pornography. Jim was found not guilty on two counts of sending. Immediately following the verdict, Jim's bail was revoked. He was handcuffed and taken into federal custody to await his sentence. Judge Woodcock wouldn't say how long that would take. In October of 2010, James Cameron was still awaiting sentencing, but he wasn't just sitting around twiddling his thumbs in federal prison he filed an appeal of his conviction. In the appeal, Michael Cunniff argued on behalf of his client that the conviction should be overturned because Jim was denied the right to confront adverse witnesses and denied due process. This was based on the fact that only a representative of Yahoo testified, not the exact employee who found the images and reported them. Jim's attorney also filed a motion for bail, saying that Jim needed to resume his sex therapy, attend, (laughs) attend to a relative, who was seriously ill, get treatment for his high blood pressure, and take care of issues with a family business so another family member could take care of it while he's in prison. Hmm. Judge Woodcock denied this motion, writing, each person who commits a serious crime accepts the risk of conviction and incarceration and the trouble he will visit upon himself and his family, friends, and community. And if family concerns trumped mandatory detention, exceptions will become the rule. Furthermore, within the range of family consequences, Mr. Cameron has not demonstrated that his are truly exceptional. I do like. Yeah. It's like, fuck you. Yeah. Get over yourself, Jim. Talk about entitlement. Also, even though Jim claimed he wasn't a flight risk. Judge Woodcock was dubious. He wrote, There is no evidence that Mr. Cameron is likely to flee if he is released, and the history of this case strongly suggests otherwise.
2: Mm-hmm. But
1: Mr. Cameron faces an enormous amount of prison time. Having now been found guilty of the crimes alleged, there is a greater likelihood of serving this time than during his pretrial release, and his flight potential is elevated. End mm-hmm. quote. As for the danger to the community, which is always a factor in granting bail, Judge Woodcock said the court is concerned about the circumstances surrounding Mr. Cameron's involvement in the case. The level of his general sophistication, the degree of his computer knowledge, which I I don't know about that, the duration of his illicit conduct. The volume of illicit pornography, the ages of his preferred victims, the content of his emails, the profound and tragic depth of his obsession, and the extraordinary risk he took in order to view illegal images, particularly in light of what he had to lose. Though Mr. Cameron correctly states that there is no evidence of any direct contact with underage children, the court cannot find that he poses no risk to children directly or indirectly if released, and it has not been provided. With any evidence to the contrary," end quote, and I have to agree with him. I
0: was going to say I hundred percent. So he denied
1: him bail in January 2011. Judge Woodcock denied Jim's appeal of his conviction. He basically said, "No, it was clear that Jim was quote obsessed with young girls and was determined to view pornographic images of them." End quote. Along with the issue of the Yahoo employee, there were other issues brought up in motions. That the judge didn't think there needed to be an expert witness to say whether girls in the photos were under 18 and that it wasn't proven that Jim had deliberately downloaded images and there was a possibility he did it by accident. Judge Woodcock wrote an 11 page denial in which he said the court rejects Mr. Cameron's argument that the amount of child pornography as opposed to adult pornography linked to Mr. Cameron compels the conclusion that his receipt and sending of child pornography was unintentional. The court was presented with overwhelming evidence demonstrating Mr. Cameron's obsession with girls between the ages of 12 and 14. Based on that evidence, the court finds that his possession, receipt, and transportation of child pornography was knowing and intentional so jim's case would go to appeal at the first circuit court of appeals in boston after his sentencing he still hadn't been sentenced for his original convictions and he couldn't appeal until he actually sentenced right he was appealing the conviction which the judge said no the step after that is court of appeals in boston According to the sentencing guidelines, Jim was facing 20 to 27 years in federal prison. And that's what I don't understand. Before they were saying it, there's a minimum sentence. I wish Matt were here to explain this to me. Mm. Thought there was a minimum mandatory sentence. But then, so I don't know. I'm just confused. about. It. At the end of February 2011, which is when my baby was born. It was announced that James would be sentenced on March 10th. Michael Cuniff was arguing for a five-year sentence for the 13 counts. He said Jim was, quote, a first-time offender with a previously unblemished record of public service, end quote. So what? M- Michael also said Jim takes full responsibility for his involvement in child pornography. In particular, Mr. Cameron recognizes and accepts the need for atonement. He lost his job in public service. He's in the process of disbarment and he has little hope of ever practicing law again. Indeed, it is unlikely he will ever gain meaningful employment. He has lost his reputation with little hope of overcoming the disgrace that has befallen him. Uh. His business is failing due to his incarceration. His marriage has failed at least in part to the issues that led to his misconduct. He hopes for reconciliation, but the process of a long prison term is a hampering factor. You think that having child porn on your computer is that more might of a hurt your,
0: That might hurt your marriage a little. I would think so. And also... The whole point of the judicial system is when you break a law, you suffer the penalty for it. As
1: Judge Woodcock said, yeah. The prosecutors were arguing for sentencing that fell within the federal guidelines between 262 and 327 months or 21 and three quarter years to 27 and a quarter years. And maybe the sentencing thing is maybe they're using state because it said in that. Yeah, I office, know. There's state, I don't know. It doesn't matter. It was state court that he was, right, district right, court. Right. It wasn't federal court. Right. The government felt the sentence should be longer because of the images on his computer, which were prepubescent children and included uh. depictions of sadomasochistic and, oh. and sadomasochism and other horrible things. Oh, they said strange. he didn't deserve a shorter sentence because he refused to take responsibility. Saying he's taking responsibility, but he's really not because he's not saying my addiction to child porn led to my, it's all the things that led up to my misconduct. Right, like, right. That's right. right.
0: He's not taking responsibility
1: yeah. at all. And you'll see this is a quote. The defendant did not admit any guilt at all until his post trial interview with United States probation. Even then, he minimized his culpability. Mm -hmm. In their sentencing memo, the prosecution detailed online conversations between James Cameron and someone with the online name Kinky Bink. Jim had at least 547 child pornography images on his computers. Quote, many of the images depicted babies and young children being victimized. His pervasive use of file wiping software suggests that the number of images he traded and possessed was much higher. He hid those images on remote Yahoo servers under assumed names, hoping to conceal his identity while keeping his child pornography collection readily available for viewing and trading. The evidence proved that when he was supposed to be prosecuting drug offenders, the defendant was often at home on his computer viewing and trading child pornography end quote and i'll say that besides him doing that he's typical guy his age lazy ass dickhead besides the other horrible things he did right according to the prosecutor's memo jim admitted to one of the investigators that he was addicted to child porn on march 10th 2011 judge woodcock sentenced james cameron to 16 years in prison during the hearing which took over three hours Judge Woodcock said, Mr. Cameron, the question remains, why did you engage in this unlawful conduct? Mr. Cameron, you had so much to lose and now you've lost it. Today, you're not on the right side of the courtroom prosecuting the criminals, but in the defendant's seat, a criminal yourself. Judge Woodcock allowed James to stay in Maine in the Cumberland County Jail in Portland for a couple of days so he could meet with Michael Cunoff and prepare the appeal they were submitting to the Court of Appeals in Boston. Michael told reporters, Mr. Cameron will appeal the length of the sentence and the reasonableness of the sentence, as well as a selection of issues he raised prior to the trial. We will ask the first court of appeals to review the decision making. The prosecutor, AUSA Gail Fisk Malone, told the court that Jim had been thumbing his nose at Mainers because he wasn't doing the job he was being paid for. She said, The defendant essentially committed this crime on the backs of the taxpayers. In addition to breaking the law, he was cheating the state of Maine of the honest service he was paid to provide. Michael Cunoff told the court that the prosecutors had previously offered Jim a plea agreement in which he'd only served 78 to 91 months or six and a half to seven and a half years. But Jim had refused it, which I think Mm. is one of the reasons Peter Rodway quit too, which we'll talk about. Michael also told the court the reasons that led Jim to become addicted to child pornography, quote, stress, distress, anxiety, the progressive deterioration and death of each of his parents, caring for an ailing family member, the pressure of his job and of a book he was writing, as well as a lifelong problem with obsessive compulsive disorder and changes of medication. Also, Michael argued the percentage of child porn found on the computers was very low. <laughs> Compared to of the, some of these guys. the overall images on the computer. Yeah. So, you know, it's only a yeah. little. Judge Woodcock wasn't buying it. He said the juxtaposition <laughs> of banal photos of young girls fully clothed posing next to monuments and stuff, the kind of photos you'd find in any family album, next to photos of unclothed girls in sexual situation and engaged in sex, All the girls 10 to 12 years old was, quote, jarring. The judge said, I reviewed those photos until I was sick. The judge rejected a plea for restitution from one of the girls in the photos. He also declined to impose a fine on James Cameron because James wouldn't be able to pay. My opinion is that restitution isn't so much about this, someone's ability to pay, but the debt will be hanging over their head the rest of their life to remind them. Right. And that's how I feel. I feel like even if they're taking two bucks a week out of your paycheck, you're going to remember that fucking crime. Or if they
0: decide, oh, I'm going to write a book or something, that money's all going to go to the victim. In -hmm. fact, I feel like in a lot of, instances it's more effective than prison time yeah it's all in other
1: countries there was a book i read it was a fiction book but still the guy was convicted of something in germany and they took whatever his income had been and he had to do something like that was a monetary thing right which does you know but anyway judge woodcock said at the beginning of the sentencing hearing there's a time for argument and a time for decision this is a time for decision The defense engaged in a scorched earth defense. There was not a tree standing, not a bush standing, not a stone left unturned. He objected almost without exception to every piece of evidence. And as I said, don't piss off the judge when it's a bench trial. You don't need to fucking object
0: every two seconds because it's going to get. It's friggin' lawyers when they're defendants, you know, they think they can game the system. So James was sentenced to 16 years in federal prison.
1: As Judge Woodcock read his sentence, Jim nodded his head. Just before the sentence was handed down, Jim gave a statement to the court, and I will now perform a dramatic reading of it. It's so... First, I want to say that I am very sorry for the pain and disappointment that this has caused my family, friends, and colleagues. I am here because of my own actions. I fully accept the fact that I have been found guilty. No matter what anyone may think, the court has found me guilty. There is no other meaning of the word guilty. I am guilty and I stand here ready to face punishment with the greatest respect for the judicial process. That said, I am deeply ashamed of myself and offer no excuses for my conduct. I also want to say that I am deeply sorry for the loss and pain suffered by all victims of sexual abuse. During my career, I have seen the results of this appalling exploitation firsthand. If anyone who reads or knows about this case feels that my punishment is retribution for their suffering, my punishment will have served a greater purpose. Therefore, I accept my punishment in the hope that this may lead to redemption. It is written that there is nothing secret that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. I have now seen this to be true. It has now happened to me. Whatever I have said in the darkness was heard in the light. And what was whispered by me behind closed doors has been shouted from the rooftops. It is a fact of life that there are no secrets that will not be revealed in time, if only to ourselves. No one can escape this responsibility. Taking responsibility means accepting the harsh scrutiny of my actions. I am here today to take that responsibility. When my punishment is completed and my sentence is served, I know that what I can expect from my life will be greatly diminished. But now I realize that what I can expect from life is not important and never was. What is important is what life expects from me. Every day I will ask myself this question for the rest of my life. What a bullshit statement! Also, he's a very poor writer. Yeah. Um, now this is a lot of words, but I think we will see from Jim's past actions and what happens later. His actions belie his words. Yes. I mean, right when he was saying that, he was preparing an appeal, so yes. he's clearly not taking right, this right. But anyway. Right. And it's also very poorly written and cliche. Yeah, written.
0: I hate it when people try to sound profound, I know. you know, and it just comes off as a pile of steaming and bullshit. He,
1: you know, he's a supposedly well-educated man. You think he yeah. can write better. You no, know, you'd be as a, surprised. <laughs> as expected, Jim filed his appeal with the First Circuit. He also petitioned the court for release while awaiting his appeal. Judge Woodcock denied the petition. That petition went up to the First Circuit Court. And in August 2011, they ruled that Jim should be released pending the resolution of his appeal.
2: Mm -hmm. Jim's
1: Boston lawyer had argued that when he was previously out on bail, Jim adhered to the bail conditions and didn't try to flee. And the court agreed. Jim had been at the Englewood prison in Littleton, Colorado, so he'd be coming back to Maine. And I want to know, too, when prisoners are transported like that, you know, tax money pays for all that. Yeah, it does. Jim would have to wear a GPS monitor and have his internet use monitored, and he'd also have to register as a sex offender. Also in August, Judge Ellen Gorman signed an order suspending Jim from practicing law. (laughs) Finally, Um, Peter Rodway represented Jim in the bar hearing. Peter told reporters, We came to an agreement, so we didn't need to have a hearing. The status right now is that we agreed to be temporarily suspended. And once his appeal runs its course, we're pretty optimistic he's going to win. Then the parties can decide on what happens in the overseer's disciplinary hearing. So Jim
0: just chilled out in Rome, Maine for about a year. Right. He was staying at the camp in Rome. His wife got the house in Hollowell. Yes. In July 2012, he
1: was in the papers because of a motorcycle accident. He was driving on Water Street in Hollowell at about 2 p.m. on July 2nd when he lost control of his bike, hit a curb, and went off the road. No charges were filed or anything. He said there was slowing traffic, and I don't know, he swerved. He went to mm-hmm. Maine Med. He was brought to Maine Medical Center in Portland with non-life-threatening injuries. The wheels of justice moved slowly. The First Circuit Court of Appeals ruled on Jim's appeal and issued their decision on Wednesday, November 14, 2012. They vacated six of the counts, but they upheld seven. The Press Herald had a good explanation of the precedent the appeals court used to vacate the six counts. It had to do with that Yahoo argument that Jim should have had the chance to cross-examine the witness. So I'm going to read what Eric Russell wrote in his article because I think he explains it pretty well. The relevant Supreme Court ruling made last year in Bullcoming versus New Mexico involved a drunken driving charge. During the trial, a supervisor had testified about a forensic analysis done by an employee. The defendant's lawyer argued that the testimony should not have been admitted because the defense was not allowed to cross examine the person who actually did the analysis. The Sixth Amendment to the US Constitution, which spells out procedures for criminal prosecution, contains a quote, confrontation clause. That means defense attorneys may confront any government witness. In Bullcoming versus New Mexico, the Supreme Court decided that that clause had been violated. And that's the end of my reading. But this was the thinking behind the appeals court decision in Jim's case. Since the defense wasn't able to confront the specific Yahoo employee who had reported the child pornography in court, that was just their legal representative or someone, those convictions would not stand that were based Mm -hmm. on that. The case went back to the U.S. District Court in Maine to either retry the case or adjust the sentence based on the standing convictions. This meant either way, Jim had pretty much lost his appeal and he'd be going back to prison. After he learned about his loss, Jim went to Hollowell. He'd been living, like we said, in Rome on the lake. He wanted to tell his son and ex-wife he'd be going to prison. No mention was made of his daughter in the newspaper reports, but his son was 17 by then. And I'm assuming his daughter was not living at home. She's probably in college or out of college. And if I were her, I wouldn't want to be anywhere near my father. And after he talked to them, he went back to his place in Rome. At about midnight Wednesday to Thursday, Jim cut off his ankle monitor and took off in his Audi with his laptop and not much Mm -hmm. else. Karen Lee Moody who was the chief U.S. probation officer in Maine, told the Portland Press-Herald that it's rare for someone to remove their ankle monitor. She'd had her job for 22 years and said she'd only seen it happen a couple times. Scott Landry, who worked for the Maine Department of Corrections, said they're very easy to get off with a pair of heavy duty scissors or a knife. They can be cut off, but we're going to know pretty quickly. Mm -mm. Any device would send an immediate alert to the servicing vendor, who then notifies authorities. There are three types of monitor radio frequency which use telephone landlines passive gps which uses satellites and cell towers and periodically updates the location of the wearer and active gps works the same way as the passive but the updates are instant it's always updating constantly so right. they know where you are to the second whereas with the passive they, gps they know every few minutes right. or whatever. they
0: would know if somebody was sitting there looking at a screen watching yes, it the whole time exactly but nobody is that.
1: so Although it had been reported that Jim had the GPS monitor, it was actually the radio one, which works best in places with Spotty Cell Service, which around where he was, was.
0: Yes, just like where I am. And
1: still is. Yep. Usually, according to Kara Moody, sex offenders will get the GPS. She said, if you have a sex offender that you need to monitor closely, you can put them on active GPS. We might even create exclusion zones. And by that, she means daycare, schools, stuff like that when Jim removed his ankle monitor, an alert went out. And this was about 1245, like mm-hmm. I said. But no one started looking to, for him until nine hours later. Deputy Dean Knightley of the U.S. Marshal Service told reporters, we don't know where he is, but we're following up on leads anywhere and everywhere. <laughs> Deputy Knightley said Jim didn't leave a note so they didn't know where he went. <laughs> and that, no, I think they had a suicide. note. And they right. don't think he harmed himself. No. Still, Barbara, Jim's ex-wife, said he was, quote, not doing well.
0: If he was going to die by suicide, he would not have cut off the GPS no monitor. Shit. Okay.
1: So this is what happened. At about 1246 a.m. Thursday, November fifteenth, two 2012, U.S. probation officer Mitchell Oswald said that there was an alert call that Jim had removed his bracelet. Mitchell said he had a, quote, missed call from the monitoring service. So he didn't see the alert until about 1.45 a.m. Probably because he was sleeping.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: He called Jim on both his phone and landline and got no answer. Hmm. So then he went back to sleep. <laughs> I'm assuming. I'm sorry, that's mean. Mitchell called Jim again at 7 a.m. and at 8 a.m. with no response. Main State Police and probation officers went to the house in Rome at about 10.30 a.m. on Thursday. So he had, like I said, nine hours on noon Thursday, Deputy Knightley was notified. No sense of urgency, I guess. And I know he's not a violent criminal, but still, he, you know. Well, he's a, he's a child, he's a pedophile. Mitchell Oswald wrote in his report Mr. Cameron and his vehicle were both gone. His cell phone was in the house. The laptop computer that pretrial services monitored as a condition of release was gone. Deputy Knightley said, We immediately began looking into possible locations and whereabouts. Once we were notified he was missing, we're following leads in-state and Mm out-of-state and at various locations around the country. Mm -hmm. That's a way to answer without. Right. As soon as we were notified, we began looking. Yeah. Whatever. Judge Woodcock issued an arrest warrant. Donald Clark, A USA said that it was wrong to say they didn't look for Jim right away. Quote, from the moment they were aware he was missing, they were attempting to contact him and locate him. Right now, the only problem is that he's accused of violating bail. The first order of business is to locate Mr. Cameron We're
0: trying to, but he won't answer his phone.
1: Donald Clark denied that Jim was getting any special treatment because of his former position. It wasn't unusual for child porn defendants to get bail while their cases were pending. On Tuesday, November 20th, investigators searched Barbara Cameron's home in Hollowell and determined Jim wasn't hiding there. Yeah, five days after he's gone, they search her house. Right, I remember that. U.S. Marshal Noel March said Barbara's home was, quote, one of several options we're pursuing. We're exhausting all resources and examining all options. When asked if the fact that James Cameron had been a prosecutor might give him an edge over other fugitives, Noel March said, You could presume that he has more legal expertise than the average citizen. I don't know if he's smarter than the average bear. We're pretty good at this. Mm -hmm. I'm hopeful that he'll end this pursuit on his own and contact us at (laughs) 780-3355 to arrange his surrender into custody peacefully. Not everyone was surprised that Jim took off. Gail Malone, the assistant U.S. attorney back in 2009, said the reason she broke an agreement with Peter Rodway was because she found out that Jim had not only traveled out of state, but overseas and the weeks before he was indicted. Peter Rodway told the Press Herald that Gail had promised him when she got ready to indict him, she would tell me and I would produce Jim at the time and place they told me. That way there wouldn't be an arrest warrant issued, end quote. I don't know why that was important
0: maybe to keep things quiet I don't mm-hmm. know why he they didn't just a insiders agreement you know oh. so he wouldn't be embarrassed Gal wrote in an affidavit we became
1: concerned that Cameron might flee If he was aware that the charges were imminent because of these concerns, we were not willing to honor that promise and instead saw a warrant for his arrest following the return of the indictment. End quote. Jim had surrendered his passport as a bail condition, so he didn't have that, although he could easily get a fake one. I mean, I don't know. Peter Horseman, Jim's lawyer at the time, said, I don't think they had any basis to believe he'd flee back then. In retrospect, it's kind of hard to argue otherwise. No shit. All attorneys who had represented Jim said he always followed conditions of release before. Yeah, up until he didn't.
0: Right, exactly.
1: Duh, when his last, his last chance was taken away. I mean, he was compliant when he thought he could still win. Right. I mean, duh. No shit. Peter Rodway said, Jim was one of the toughest people I know. He had a lot on his plate and was facing a lot of pressure and he handled it pretty well. And I just says, empathy, as Laura would say. Laura right. Richards, Empathy. James Cameron came to Maine two years after graduating from the University of Detroit's Mercy School of Law. He wasn't yet 30 when he was hired by the attorney general's office as an assistant focusing on prosecuting drug cases in Kennebec County. Derek Banda, who I believe has Mm -hmm. been in some of our episodes, Mm -hmm. worked with Jim as an assistant AG in the Kennebec County office. He said he seemed to have a good reputation. No one had anything bad to say. Mm hmm. Walter McKee, a defense attorney, had faced faced Jim in court several times. He said he was very competent, aggressive prosecutor, a worthy adversary, quick on his feet. Fucking man. Few, if any, knew Jim on a personal level. Derek Banda said that at the annual Maine Prosecutors Conference in Bar Harbor, a lot of the lawyers would go out for drinks in the evening. Quote, he just wasn't part of that. Although Walter McKee lived in the same neighborhood as Jim, they never interacted outside court. He was a private person, Walter said. No shit. Mm -hmm. William Stokes was the head of the criminal division for the AG's office and knew Jim better than most, but would not talk about him to newspapers. Steve Rowe, who was Jim's boss for eight years, wouldn't talk about the man who was called his close advisor. When reporter Eric Russell asked About Jim on a phone call there was a long pause and Steve Rose said I'm not going to talk about that sorry no one who had worked with Jim most recently was willing to talk about him at all like you said they did Mm -hmm. not Jim and Barbara married when he was 22. They had two kids, a son, and an older daughter. I couldn't find out much more about his family. As I mentioned, Jim and his brother both liked antique watches. I started a company, Corvus Watch Company, that sold watches and produced reproductions of antique watches. And I looked it up. There's still a Facebook page and a website, but no activity since 2012. Hmm. It's, it's kind of sad they should just get rid of their websites because there's like no activities for over well, 10 years. Well, somebody
0: must be somebody must be paying for well the no website. it's face
1: it's a facebook page oh, and then oh, okay. a, a cheesy okay. like just page barbara's attorney bruce merrill told the press herald she didn't want to make any comments she's trying to protect her children he said she's trying to put this behind her since it happened on sunday december 2nd in 2012 at about eleven fifteen a.m jim cameron was finally caught in albuquerque new mexico He was coming out of the bathroom of a store when U.S. Marshals arrested him. He went quietly and didn't put up a fight. The store was called Hastings Entertainment and it sold books, DVDs, video games, and electronics. I looked up the address on Coors Boulevard in Albuquerque. It's a huge strip mall type of thing. The investigators were closed-lipped about what Jim had been up to in the more than two weeks since he was on the run. But U.S. Marshal Noel March seemed a bit defensive. He said... He wasn't free for all that long, especially Mm -hmm. for the effort that he invested in this. We worked around the clock every day for seven days a week. It took a tremendous amount of effort and staff resources to apprehend Mr. Cameron. This is an example of what the U.S. Marshals Service does best, locating and apprehending fugitives. Mm -hmm. Aren't you wonderful? You're going to break your arm patting yourself. I know. uh, Donald Clark, U.S. attorney spokesman, said of Jim, he definitely won't be returning Monday. It could take a while to initiate the court proceedings in New Mexico. They have to do a bunch of stuff, I think, when they have a fugitive, like identify that as really him. and Yeah. And he has to appear in court. And he has to,
0: yeah, he has to waive extradition and all that. Jim was being held in jail in Albuquerque
1: until he could be brought back to Maine. When he was arrested, he still had his tan Audi, but he changed the license plates. Inside the car, he had camping equipment. Thomas Santaquita, an investigator in Brunswick and a former chief of the Maine Warden Service, told the Press Herald he wasn't surprised that Jim was found only 200 miles from the Mexican border. He said he thought Jim was probably headed for Mexico, quote, otherwise, why would he go to New Mexico? There's a decent number of people in Mexico who will provide all kinds of underground services. You can basically get what you want in Mexico for money. Which brings up the question, what was Jim doing for money? That information came out in an affidavit that had been filed in New Mexico for a warrant to search Jim's car and computer. Jim had printed two bogus checks, one for 32000 and one for 42000 using an insurance account that was attached to his business, Corvus Watch Company. The $42,000 check was going to a Chase Bank account that was in Jim's name, and the $32,000 check was deposited into a Main State Employee Credit Union account under Jim's name. Both checks were printed on blanks that Jim had bought November 8th, a week before he fled, mm-hmm. from a company called Advantage Laser Products. So it looks like he was getting ready to take off if things didn't go his way. He mm-hmm. had a little plan. The checks were flagged as fake by the banks right away so they weren't processed. But one of the reasons Jim got caught is he kept using his debit card at ATMs to check his balance <laughs> to Dumbass. see if the checks declared. cleared <laughs> which I, I can I can relate I to know. that. You but, need you know, a better plan. It took over a month, but Jim was returned to Maine to face a contempt of court charge before Judge Woodcock for violating his bail condition. The violations were breaking curfew and leaving the state without permission from his probation officer, removing the monitoring device and disabling the internet monitoring system on his computer and changing his address without permission. When James appeared before Judge Woodcock on January 8th, 2013 he pled not guilty jim wore a t-shirt that said stafford county doc and that's the jail the u.s marshal's office put him it's in new hampshire because maine does not have a federal yeah
0: it's a for-profit jail in northern new hampshire
1: the judge said he was going to wait until jim was tried on his contempt of court charges to sentence him for everything at once Judge Woodcock told Jim there is no statutory maximum for criminal contempt of court, which means that the maximum sentence could be a lifetime incarceration on that charge alone.
0: Mm -hmm. I
1: think Judge Woodcock had a...
0: Judge Woodcock had fucking had enough. He
1: was not. He did not like Jim. Federal public defender David Beneman was appointed as Jim's counsel. In February 2013, Jim pled guilty to the contempt charges. He was sent back to New Hampshire to await his sentences on the remaining convictions and the conviction for the contempt of court. So the seven original convictions. Sentencing would not happen quickly. The defense and the prosecutors were arguing about the length of the sentences. And even the prosecutors were having a hard time figuring out what to recommend for the convictions. And I thought I said Before, maybe I accidentally dropped that sentence, but they declined to retry him. They decided to just sentence him on his...
0: So I'm sorry, can you clarify? So they didn't retry him on... When the Court of Appeals
1: sent it back to the um, main court, they said you can either retry him or you can just sentence him on the convictions that were not overturned. Oh, okay. The court decided they weren't going to retry him and they're just going to sentence him on what he He was convicted on.
0: Like seven charges and six were dropped.
1: Okay. And and, not dropped, they were vacated. So he could have been retried. On those ones. On those, on the whole, I think he would have to be the whole thing again.
0: Okay. I don't think he
1: could just be, I think they figured it wasn't worth
0: it. He was Um, already going to serve time for those seven charges.
1: Defense attorney Beneman said, there is not a dispute that Cameron improperly removed his home monitoring bracelet, left Maine and was arrested in New Mexico. Cameron admits to the misconduct. However, the increase does not fit the facts of this case. Cameron did not escape from custody or fail to appear for any scheduled proceeding. Flight to avoid arrest is specifically listed as not supported in the obstruction increase. He said it was double punishment for the same conduct, flight. So they didn't think that he should get any extra time for that because technically he wasn't fleeing from Custody. He was a free man until
0: I know there's a lot of legal entanglements, but the, you wear a GPS monitor for a reason. You bail for a reason. So it seems to me that there should be a penalty for fleeing. Of course.
1: The prosecutor, Gail Malone, had a different opinion. She said in her sentencing memo, At bottom, a defendant who for 14 months moves hundreds of child pornography images from his computer to secure storage areas on the internet using an ever-changing array of account names, in addition to swapping child pornography images over email and a chat network for two months, is qualitatively and quantitatively different from a defendant homely swaps images for two months mm-hmm. she also reminded the court that jim had been engaging in sexually explicit chats since 2006 quote frequently posed as a teenage girl during those chats because it drew more attention and that he had received child porn during the chat sessions and would change profiles to avoid detection Finally, the defense recommended six and a half years, while the prosecution recommended following federal guidelines, which would mean over 30 years in prison. Mm -hmm. On December 17th, 2013, Jim was finally sentenced to 15 and a half years, which included 24 months for jumping bail. At his sentencing hearing in December 2013, Jim told the court, I freely admit that late in 2006, at a difficult time of my life, I became addicted to child pornography. I did what I did because I was selfish. Judge Woodcock said that Jim deliberately, consciously, willfully was in contempt of this court. He required as a consequence of his actions virtually a nationwide manhunt to track him down. Jim wasted no time in appealing that sentence. So much for taking responsibility, like Mm -hmm. I said. David Beneman filed notice of appeal with the U.S. Court for the District of Maine, which could be heard by the First Circuit Court of Appeals in Boston. The appeal basically said that because of Jim's background as a supposed upstanding citizen and public service and lack of other illegal activities, his sentence was too harsh. Part of the sentencing formula is apparently a person's background, which I think is bullshit. Mm-hmm. I don't th- In fact, I think so almost so the, I re-
0: think that favors a certain class of yes. people. Obviously. And I think
1: almost the reverse is true. That someone like James Cameron with his background, I think he almost think he should get a harsher sentence because he should know better. Right. He should know. He
0: should know better. Here he is prosecuting people when he's knowingly breaking the law himself. What right does he have? And also, people in his position are looked at differently and can get away with more shit than if he had been, you know, some, yeah. some petty criminal or something, and they use that. So yes. they should get a harsher sentence.
1: In August of 2016, the First Circuit came back with its ruling. They take their time, I can tell you that. It was two and a half years. The appeal was denied, and Jim had no more chances to appeal. Mm -hmm. The court said the calculations were done correctly. His sentence of 189 months or 15 years and nine months stands. He's now back in Littleton, Colorado. He should be getting out soon because he probably built up good time as a model prisoner. His type usually do. Mm -hmm. And it's a minimum security prison. If you recall, you may remember Jim was writing a book. Mm -hmm. I mentioned that he was writing a book. Apparently, Jim was childhood friends with Barton Watson the former CEO of a company based in Michigan called Cybernet Engineering. Barton Watson was a fraudster who lived lavishly and bragged about his wealth online. And I looked it up. There's a lot of stuff on him Mm. online. He committed suicide in 2004, days after his business was raided by federal investigators, and it was discovered that he was in debt to the tune of $100 million. Jim was fascinated by his childhood friend's story and was writing a book. He appeared on the show American Greed as a talking head.
0: Yeah, I assume he appeared on that show. Yeah, it was back in 2005
1: or something. Okay, Maybe now he's had time to get his book written in prison. What else is he going to do?
0: It's like living the dream, man. Former state representative
1: Bill Diamond self-published a book in 2012, titled The Evil and the Innocent About Sexual Child Abuse. In an interview with Portland Press Herald columnist, Bill Nemitz, Bill Diamond said he learned too much about the subject when he served on the criminal justice and public safety committees as a legislator. He said he was haunted by the young faces of the victims quote it happens a lot at nighttime two or three in the morning it's like they're begging you to not forget they're there Mm. bill diamond wrote about james cameron in his book even though jim wasn't convicted of child molestation bill diamond points out that jim supported an industry that subjects unknown members of children to rape and sexual violence around the world and even death
0: and also the point too when people like elliot cutler Recently. I'm
1: going to
0: talk about oh. him, so don't... No, I'm just going to say the point on that is people say, oh, it was just pornography. Well, children have to be exploited to make the pornography. Yes. He was having sexually explicit chats and stuff. Yes. and And lots of times it gets to the point where it's not enough and you have to go to the next level. Exactly. The fact that Jim was supposedly
1: so upstanding and respectable quote illustrates the fact that sex offenders are often not the creepy looking guy everyone imagines wearing a trench coat peering at little children from behind a tree, but more likely someone who has the trust of family, friends, and coworkers, which is of course the best disguise of all, end Mm -hmm. quote. And that brings us to a recent case, which I can't go into much detail as I did this one, but I need to mention, and that's Elliot Cutler. Until about a year and a couple months ago, the worst crimes you could attribute to Elliot Cutler was that he made us have Paul LePage as governor for two terms. Mm -hmm. Elliot ran as an independent candidate twice. And although I tried to argue with people that he was not moderate and not a good choice, he siphoned votes away from the Democratic candidates, even our mother Voted for him the first time. Mom did. Time. Uh, Jesus. Yes,
0: she did. See, I always thought he was a pompous. Entitled. I hate. I lived in New Hampshire at the time, but I never liked him from the start. And I thought it was cynical. It was, it was misogynistic. Moderate. Yes, because of yes the yes. Democratic yes. candidate. We've
1: discussed was. that. And um, yes. Elliot was a very wealthy native mater born in Bangor in 19. 19- 42, who graduated from Harvard and Georgetown, of course. He worked with Senator Edmund Muskie. He worked for the Carter administration and a bunch of other high-profile jobs and positions, environmental lawyer, blah, blah, blah. I never liked the guy, although I did see him on an elevator once and said hi, mainly because he looked familiar. And I didn't realize who he was. And he said hi to me. And then when I left, I'm like, oh, that was a leaf. Anyway, in March of 2022, the top story was that Elliot Cutler's house was raided and computers taken. And I think we all knew what that meant, or at least people like who think like me said Mm -hmm. child porn, because the first thing I thought of, I didn't think of fraud. I thought of child pornography. I was like, I knew it. I fucking knew it. It was reported that he had more than 80 Thousand child porn files. Holy fucking theater. shit. Just a few weeks ago, he worked on a plea agreement. He'll be serving nine months in <laughs> prison. Nine months. Let that sink in for 80,000 files. Not long before his arrest, there was a long fawning article in the Press Herald, which I can't link to because they have a, what you would call it, we paywall, about how he's selling his 15,000 square foot house on the water in Cape Elizabeth is like eight million million, one One of the most expensive houses in Southern Maine. Mm-hmm. It's a beautiful, lavish house. And it's disgusting. He disgusts me so much. Mm-hmm. And I almost didn't do this story because the subject matter makes me sick. And I don't like or want to share details because they make me want to puke, but I feel like someone has to talk about it because it is happening. Children are being victimized daily and creeps like James Cameron and Elliot Cutler try to minimize their own culpability by saying they're only looking at stuff, not doing it. Mm-hmm. And I have a couple thoughts on that child rape is often a crime of opportunity if you like looking at kids being raped and you have a chance to do it for instance babysittings or something why would i believe that you wouldn't try it right and even if it's not the case like i said before every image you look at is showing a crime you're getting satisfaction by watching a horrible disgusting crime a human being being victimized and violated it's just disgusting i hate them so much and yeah, that's the end of my story
0: and as you mentioned and as we've talked about on other episodes episodes part of the whole child porn network is you can't just look, you have to trade, you have to provide images as yes. well. I know that because just as a newspaper editor stories that's how a lot of these guys get caught mm-hmm. not by receiving images, but by trading in images. even if they do quote unquote just like looking, they have to find some way to generate child porn that they can give. And, and I think that's one part, you know, how guys think, oh, well, if we make them do that, then they're not cops. Yeah. You know? But also it's you have to keep generating more porn. So you kind of wonder what James Cameron and Elliot Cutler and all their ilk did. To hold up their end of it. Two more points I want to say. First of all, is this whole, oh, this is his first offense and he was upstanding and he was a public servant. To me, that makes you worse because you've betrayed the public trust. James Cameron, like I said, was a prosecutor. He's prosecuting all sorts of people for crimes, drug crimes, a lot of them are low level, poor people who are in bad situations. And Maine and shit, mental illness and all this. And he's just merrily prosecuting people and throwing them in prison without a second thought. Whereas he's committing a crime that's hurting people much more than petty drug crimes do. And is much more disgusting. And and then I heard this in the Alec murder trial too from his lawyer this whole argument oh he's a smart lawyer so a he wouldn't do something this stupid or mm. b if he were gonna do this he wouldn't do it in a way to get cop blah, blah blah what a bunch of bullshit these guys think they're smarter than everyone else they think they can gain the system they have a sense of entitlement because they're white middle-aged men or even not middle-aged when they were younger in a position like that they've been able to slide and get away with all sorts of shit who else gets away with saying oh i'm working at home before the big working at home revolution i know and spending all day i mean that's a busy job being an assistant attorney general but you're spending all day on the computer looking at child porn i wouldn't have been able to get away with that in any jobs i ever worked Uh, because you have to produce shit and do shit i know And he had two young kids, disgusting, disgusting, disgusting. People like him and Elliot Cutler disgust me way more than the typical sleazy, in the raincoat pedophile old guy that, you know, Uh. is the stereo, used to be the stereotype. But now these guys are, these guys have more, they have more access. They have more ability to do it. They have more technological equipment mm-hmm. and know-how. It's these guys you have to look out for. But even like now with uh,
1: AI and stuff, yeah, they can generate it. But what is a per? People can say, oh, it's a fantasy or whatever. But what kind of person? What are you looking at? What you know, your fucking brain? People,
0: people have all sorts of different sexual proclivities and fantasies. But I guarantee you most of them don't have hundreds or thousands or whatever images of their fantasies on their computer. They can claim it's an addiction. They can claim they were under stress or whatever. But they know it's wrong. There are very few crimes where someone can claim, I was under stress. I committed this horrible, heinous, disgusting crime because I was under stress. Try to think of crimes like as a woman... Because it's not the women doing the child porn shit, you Although know. Although
1: there are some bad ones. Ugh. Well, once in a while,
0: ninety plus percent of child porn is yes. generated yes. and accessed yes. by men. Of yes. course, if a woman does it, she gets more publicity about yes, it. She does because yes. people want to say, "Oh, look, women do it too." Yeah, and just like domestic. And also, sex.
1: they expect more of women. Well, I, they do I, expect. Sad, but I, true.
0: Well, I would say it's a pretty good record if ninety plus percent are men. But what I'm saying is, think of any crime that awful and disgusting a woman can do where you can say oh i'm under stress and yeah, I, I know i was working so hard and my marriage was breaking up and so i did this thing you don't get away with shit you don't get away Well, with you it. know
1: when you think about like drug a lot of the drug arrests are possession how is me walking on the street with some not even
0: pot because that's not legal illegal anymore yeah.
1: snorting some coke how right. is that hurting someone
0: unless i right. drive or something it isn't but well, we can go into the it. whole history of the drug wars which started as a nixon campaign Uh. to distract people from the vietnam war and also it's racist one thing i think of child porn one reason it was so slow to get traction and it's still, in a lot of ways, people get away with it, and it's hard to prosecute them, is because it's predominantly white, male, middle-class yeah. crime. Well, I'm glad you did that. And I did work at, I was the news editor at the Kennebec Journal. Yes. We had a I very good reporter, Michael Shepard, who's at the Bangor Daily News now, and he did a lot of that. And I was working the day they found out he escaped. Huh. And I was working the day that Sunday he got caught in Albuquerque. <laughs> If I remember right, Michael came in to to do that story. But I remember us talking about the whole GPS monitoring thing. And that's when I, I first, I think, realized, oh, when somebody, no matter what kind of GPS monitor they have, nobody's sitting there all the time. It's just like
1: the cameras in stores and stuff. Right.
0: And I think he was supposed to check in. Cameron was, and I can't remember, but he was supposed to check in at certain periods during the day, too. So it wasn't just the alert going off. But he was supposed to call like the monitoring service because it's all outsourced. Yeah. It's not even the cops Yeah, like they it. said, it's the vendor. It's, it's and a then private they, the private vendor yeah. who does it. Yeah, and it's like a home was, security system. Right, and he was thing. supposed yeah. to call and check in and stuff. But just the fact that nobody gave a shit that he was gone. Well, like,
1: okay, you can say, I didn't put that in my story, but someone said something like, well, there's a lot of reasons it can go off. That doesn't mean that they're cutting it off. Well, then why don't you go find out? If he it's doesn't just answer like, the phone, you should immediately go to his right, house. Right, why haven't?
0: Why have it? Yeah, it's not. that's true. And it's not like that cop had so much to do or whoever it was who was supposed to check on him. I, I know it's cold out. I know it's dark and lonely in the woods of Rome, Maine. But get in your fucking car and go knock on his the phone. The first
1: time he doesn't answer the phone, both his phones, he doesn't right. answer
0: them and you don't go there
1: right then? Well, we were trying to contact him as soon as we knew he was gone. Yeah, well, if
0: I were going to escape, I wouldn't be answering my phone either the fuck i love the way these guys always double down they're so contrite even though they don't really they act like they're taking responsibility but don't and they have all these excuses but then like him they double down he escapes what no matter what they want to call it that's what he did and then he commits fraud i know and he did a shitty job like i know how tempting it is to check your account don't deposit those fucking checks into your own account Also, don't use an ATM. Right. Your own ATM. Well, how's he going to access the money? (laughs) You either write fake checks and you cash them, or you find some other way to steal money. But anyway. So do
1: you have a... um... An NW? Yes.
0: I do. (laughs) I had no idea what you were doing for a story. You can back Mm. me up. Yes, and yet the didn't. theme continues. Uh, I
1: okay. know,
0: I know, but it, but it's good. It's my NNW is a book that mm. I just read called "The Real Lolita" by Ooh. Sarah Weinman. The book originally came out in two thousand eighteen. I read it as an ebook. It's about the true case of Sally Horner. Part of it is about who was abducted in nineteen forty eight from her New Jersey home at the age of eleven mm. by a pedophile mm. who kept her told people she was his daughter and traveled across the country with her for two years until a neighbor woman who was a very sketchy woman. It's very interesting, but realized maybe because she was sketchy and had lived a life of abuse and all sorts of issues realized what was going on. Mm. I don't want to spoil that too much, but it's not just about that, but it's also about because the name Lolita is not up. It's all about how, well, Yes, that's what I would have said. But Vladimir Nabokov, the writer, right around when this was happening or right after, wrote Lolita. Mm-hmm. And this book draws these parallels about how he followed this case and got a lot of his ideas for the book from this case. And my feeling at first was like, so what? That's what writers do. But it turns out <laughs> that Nabokov was very snobby about his writing and insisted that all his ideas came out of his own creativity and imagination, Mm -hmm. so he would never have admitted, but yet there were little clues in the book. I know, and that sounds, that aspect of the book may sound kind of like, so what? I I think as a writer, it interests me, and as an English major, I should have known more about him, and I don't. But it's a very good and interesting book. She also goes into other cases that were going on at the time, kind of delves into some other things. You know, people think, that there was no crime or any shit before the 1970s and man all sorts of crap was going on back then but because we didn't have the world wide web but i'll go into the thing and i'll i'll talk more about it as i go bad reenactments obviously no because it's a book although i guess you could make cases for things being reenactments for instance she does go into tangents she kind of goes back And forth. I mean, there's two threads to the book, Sally Horner's life and what went on with Sally Horner, and also Nabokov and what was going on with him. He wasn't famous at the time. He came over from Russia. He was having issues with the politics and shit there. He and his wife, and he ended up teaching at Princeton and then at Cornell He was obsessed with butterfly collecting and so they would go on these long summer trips and he was trying to write this book and it's very interesting the way she puts it together and I'm making it sound more boring than it is. (laughs) But there's those two threads and she also has, like I said, other crimes and other things going on, particularly in that area of New Jersey. Sally lived in Camden, New Jersey, which wasn't the kind of armpit of the world that it is now, but it was... This nice. Uh, we might have some New Jersey listeners. Well, I'm sure, well. I'm sure if we do have New Jersey listeners, they're very aware of what Camden. And I don't blame Camden for it. I blame a lot of things that have happened over the decades, socially and politically, and stuff. That I that would be a totally different story, and I don't want to go into. It. I started reading this book, by the way. I had read uh, another book by Sarah Weinman called Scoundrel. About a guy in New Jersey in 1957, Eddie Smith, who killed a 15-year-old girl, went to prison and somehow William Buckley, William F. Buckley, yes, well, no, this is, and this woman who's Sophie, I can't remember her last name, who was an editor or not for one of those big publishers, both kind of became interested in him and he being a psychopath bamboozled them he wrote a book that Sophie actually managed to craft into probably a better book than it would and then he got out of prison with their help and guess what happened but i'll let you guess you can read mm-hmm. the book and that was called scoundrel so i'm like oh i like her i want to read another book and so i read this i realized how little i knew about the book lolita my assumptions about it were inaccurate we'll talk more about that but i'm not taking anything off for reenactments you haven't read the book lolita no i haven't okay narrative cliches no the book does not have all those like ooh evil monster she tells the story she tells what happened she made great use of newspapers.com to find uh-huh. out, because because this happened a long time ago. She did some interviews. There were some people who didn't really want to talk to her, who remembered what happened at the time, back then with Sally Horner. She does a good job of telling the story without feeling she has to use a lot of cliches about what the guy did and stuff. Racial gender obtuseness, not taking anything off. I would say the opposite. She goes a lot into about the perceptions of girls and women, about the sexualization of girls and one thing about lolita and this is a common public perception actually i assumed that like a lot of tv shows and movies do today romanticized the older man younger woman and lolita was 11 or 12 she was not a 18 year old or 19 year old In the book Lolita, her real name was Dorothy Bush or in the book or something like that. And he called her Lolita. The book actually was not promoting what he was doing. It showed him for the kind of the sicko he was and stuff. But I think combined with the 1950s, even when you're doing that perceptions of women and also people's perceptions of the book, either people who haven't read it, or people who don't read well, who don't understand what they're reading.
1: Or just saw the movie.
0: There were a couple movies. Yeah, She goes into all that, but she goes into how almost immediately, and she goes into how he couldn't get Lily to publish the first and stuff. I found it very interesting, but immediately people just twisted around what yeah. it was about. So it became much sicker. In fact, I was looking, because I was going to buy a copy of it on an ebook, and I haven't yet, but I saw I, I never read reviews because they because people are idiots. But a book reviews, <laughs> I saw the top review this one copy of Lolita because there's like 15 of them online was a one star review and the person said I really wanted to like this book which I always hate when people say that I review. know but all it turns out all it's about is some old pedophile and I'm like so this person obviously knew less about <laughs> Lolita than I did and also doesn't read well doesn't know how to read a book. And understand it. But anyway, lack of good visuals, I'm taking away half a point. People may forget that when we first created the NNW five or whenever years ago, the lack of good visuals was particularly because of my peeve that not documentaries or anything but true crime books particularly ebooks that don't have photos yes or do what she did in this there are photos there aren't enough but there are several instances where she describes a photo Uh. now but the photo isn't included with the book and obviously she had access to some photos from the family so can't you get these ones you're describing Yes, I you know hate that. So there, much. there need to be more photos. And I know you can look at photos online. First of all, this case, Sally Horner's case, is not going to have many photos online. But even if it's some big case about where you can kind of look up photos, it's not the same. It's hard to find the ones you want. It's better to have them in the book. And yes, you can put photos in an ebook, have yes. fucking photos in your true crime book. And like I said, this one does. That's why it's only half a point. But there aren't enough, and the fact that she describes photos that she does not include. I don't like that when they do that. I hate that. Missing pieces, I'm not taking away any points. She covers a lot of ground. As I said, I never read Lolita, and I realized that I knew very little about it. I think she had to assume that most of the people... Reading her book, maybe we're in the same position or even worse off than I was, Hmm. but she doesn't do a lot of lecturing, but she does lead you to understand. She assumes you have a certain, you've heard of Nabokov, maybe even if it's just the Sting song, you know, the police song, which I kept thinking of when I was reading it. She does a good job of letting you know what was going on with him and why If people knew he used this case in New Jersey to help him write his book, it would have diminished him as a writer. She does that without lecturing when i read the book i wasn't planning to do an NNW, so i didn't take any notes but usually when i read a book i can remember the things that bugged me even though there's a lot of moving parts in this book she writes it in a way where it's easy to keep track of and there was nothing i can remember that i was like scratching my head and saying what wait wait a minute i don't get that In her other book, Scoundrel, there was that Eddie Smith kept having all these appeals and his case went to the Supreme Court twice and she never explained. I'm like, at some point, use up all your appeals and she needed to do a better job of explaining why he was able to just constantly keep appealing his murder conviction to the point where he actually ended up getting out of prison. But that was Scoundrel, which I also highly recommend. This one, there was nothing like that. I didn't come away wondering... Wait, why well, I don't get this. Inaccuracies, and anachronisms, um, none worth noting that I can think of. She does a good job of putting things in context. Most of the book takes place in the 1940s, early 1950s. She doesn't make the mistake, some writers do, of assuming attitudes that people would have and other things nowadays yeah expecting people then and in fact she does a good job of putting things in context so you understand what happened to sally and stuff and people's perceptions of sally and this guy i can't even remember his name who kidnapped her he had a couple names actually it's hard to write a book where most of the action takes place 60, 70, 80 years ago, and she manages to do it without any jarring anachronisms and stuff. So it's oh, good. God. Storytelling, no points off. It moves along well. She does a good job of telling the two stories. It's funny because you're in like Sally's story, and then you know, it shifts in the next chapter to Nabokov, and you're like, Oh, I, I want to find out what's going on with Sally, but then what's going on with him is interesting. So you get into that. So it's never one of those things where, oh, geez, now I have to read this boring shit about this so I can get back to the other thing. Yeah. As I said, she weaves in other cases, other things that happened back then in a way that it all fits in and makes sense. It moves along very well. She has a good voice. There was nothing about the storytelling that annoyed me. And you know how easily annoyed I can be <laughs> when I am reading freshness i'm not taking any points off this is a story most people are not familiar with even though it's you look at like elizabeth smart and people like that this is a girl who was kidnapped from home when she was 11 she was the daughter of a single mother i think that had something to do with people's attitudes or Mm -hmm. and also it was a different time and stuff but she was 11 years old but I'm sure most people have never heard of her but also tying it with Nabokov and how this helped him create this masterpiece of literature this iconic book that's hugely misunderstood repetition no points off I'm sure there's repeated stuff but it's in the context of the story it's nothing that's unnecessary or annoying beating the drum no points off it would be an easy topic to beat the drum about but she tells the story and lets you understand what's going on and she does do a very good job too of explaining how Lolita immediately upon it being completed and published was misunderstood. She was able to get access to all his papers. Nabokov's wife right after it was published and was reading the review said I'm disappointed that people aren't understanding that the, <laughs> that the strong protagonist and I'm I'm paraphrasing but the strong protagonist in the book is not Humbert Humbert you know the pedophile butt is dorothy the the girl you know lolita i highly recommend it and it has like a 3.8 on goodreads and i didn't read any of the reviews but i'm like people i don't know what people's issues could be with this book unless they wanted a true crime book and didn't want the Nabokov stuff or they shouldn't write about it you shouldn't write about lolita probably people haven't read like me haven't read lolita and she does talk about the book in a positive way which may offend people but again if they haven't read it then they or they did read it and they don't understand that it's not romanticizing pedophilia and like i said she she does point out like the perception of lolita and she talks about popular culture she talks about the movies that were made of it talks about what happened what's happened with the book what's happened with it in popular culture she does not mention sting or the police <laughs> i just remember seeing some interview by sting or something where he said some kid came up to him once and said hey who's this nabakov guy he sounds pretty <laughs> cool or something like that i highly recommend it i think our readers are smart and insightful enough to know a good book when they read one her yes. name is sarah Weinman. it's called the real lolita okay i uh, have to read it i also recommend her book called scoundrel and i'm gonna look for more books by her that's 9.5 which you would rarely see from me for a book because i'm you know you're very bitter picky Uh, yeah yeah that's another word for it so anyway that's my thank
1: you i will read oh. that and
0: i'm gonna probably read i gotta read lolita too yeah i'm gonna read, read it too. now that i understand I, I just got very annoyed the cliche of the older guy younger woman thing e- even when like they're that. not 11 or 12 years old the woman but the girl that's just such a uh, cliche you see on tv and stuff i find it demeaning to women and demeaning to girls
1: well every movie you see yeah. How many movies are they both the same age? Even if the guy is like 80, the woman is still like 40. Right. right. And that's considered old, apparently.
0: But that was good. I liked your story. I th- yeah, What made
1: you do it? I don't know. I was just thinking about it. I just was thinking. Did you come across it? No, I think maybe it was Elliot Cutler that made me think of it. Yeah. Because I remember when he was on the run.
0: You know, you think if he put the energy into his job that he had put into all his shenanigans. But anyway, I thought that was good, though. It's nice to have something different. Well, I guess we should go. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Thanks for listening. Bye.
1: Bye Bye-bye. Congress passed the Child Pornography Prevention Act of 1966. The CPPA was a substantial rewriting of federal criminal laws addressing sexual exploitation of children to encompass the new digital age. The CP- Wait, did
0: you, I'm sorry, I, I was losing track of the timeline. Did you say 1966? 1996. You said 1966. Are you sure? A Positive. I don't think I did, but you can. Well, listen why don't to you it. start? I'll story.
1: reread it, but when you listen to it, just remember. I will, and remember. then you can tell me if I'm right or not. Oh, you'll find out, all right. Congress passed the Child Pornography Prevention Act of
0: 1966. Of 1966. And stuff, which isn't um, n- normal. I said. Th- ah! 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 Is that a tick? It, it was that tick from earlier. You know what I have to do is stop screaming and knocking it off of me, but actually kill it and flush it down the toilet. Where did it go? But anyway, he's looking for you. He'll now. be back. He'll oh. be back. He's been hanging around for hours. I'm a tick magnet, as opposed to being Ugh. a tick magnet. Oh, I can't. God, that tick just threw totally off. Your voice is going to be very uneven i'm sorry because you're looking
1: for the tick i know i'm
0: nervous now. so that's my thank you wait there's the tick hang on a minute i know you're oh you think oh you think yes you do. how do you know it's the same one i hope it's the same one hang on <laughs> i'm gonna go flush it down the toilet okay you do that